between 77 and 83, I got so many, I don't know, 17, 18 albums maybe that, um, you know, that I, I played on that were just, you know, some of them were hits, uh, a lot of them were, and some of them were, you know, just good songs. So well, I want to talk about some of my favorites. Uh, in particular, okay. you mentioned Stargard first and uh, Which Way Is Up, you know, great track and you know from the richard pryor uh movie uh of the same yeah name. yeah so uh, i think it that might have gotten number one on the rb chart i'm not sure but it was it was pretty much a monster and you know did you um as i remember that long version was pretty long you know so yeah, yeah. how long were you laying down that groove in the studio well i i would I was pretty good at, at, at Groove, and my chops were pretty high because I'd been gigging for a long time. So it was pretty easy, but I probably I probably laid the track in, a, in an hour. You know, probably took about an hour. But, you know, you, have, you, you always have spots where you have to punch and make adjustments and stuff like that. But, yeah, probably, probably about an hour. I mean, I, I learned pretty fast. Did you get to meet the girls, the singers, uh, at any point? Yeah, I loved them. They were, they, they were not only were they talented, they were beautiful. So it was uh, at that time, you know, I was 22, 23 years old. It was like, oh yeah, these sticks are gorgeous. Yeah, <laughs> having them around, working with them, and uh, I, and 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 they were driven, especially Rochelle Runnels. Rochelle was the, uh, she was the driving force behind the group. Rochelle was was really, really just a talented, brilliant young lady who could just like, um, you know, she was always pushing, always pushing to make something happen, and um, and it, yeah, it was it was a joy working with them in the studio. Yeah. Did you also play on what you waiting for? And um, yeah, what you waiting for? What yeah. you waiting for? That's another great yeah. one. And um, I think it was on their second album. I was in, um, it might have been VIP Records on Crenshaw, Los Angeles. You know, back then, the record stores, they would sometimes have DJs in the stores. And you uh -huh. could hear like, something for the first time just being in one of those record stores. Very cool. And I heard Star, Star Bob. Um, and I thought it was Parliament Funkadelic. I mean, it's so funky. And I uh, love that track. So I don't know if you played on that one, but that's another like great Stargard, really hardcore funk. Yeah, no, I did. I didn't play on that one. I didn't play on that one. Yeah. Um, so all this time you're in the studio, I guess you didn't get to go on the road much or at all, right? I didn't. I didn't from 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 seventy, like I said, from seventy seven to about eighty two. Uh, so we we didn't go on the road at all, you know, Mamatappy didn't do hardly anything. Uh, uh, there would be lull times where you would be, where we would be like, um, you know, we, we'd be cutting straight for three or four straight months, right? And then we'd have two months where we didn't do anything. Then we come back in the studio three, four straight months like that. On those lull times, I started taking like local gigs with with local bands, mostly in 
Orange County playing with some of the Orange County uh, rock bands and and there were some dance bands and some, you know, um, uh, just a, a lot of club bands in Orange County. In fact, one of the groups I played with, in fact, the first group I played with when I uh, when I hit my first log, I'm mean, gonna in the studio, in the studio, in the studio, and then no work for a month, right? Because all the other businesses going on, mastering and and artwork and promotion and all that stuff, and there's no work for a month or two months. I I joined a group called Live Jive out of Orange County, and. Uh, Live Jive was the band that Bobby Caldwell was in, right? What happened was Bobby was playing with Danny Sype and Live Jive. Danny Sype was the leader of Live Jive. And, and uh, Bobby got a record deal and came out with, I guess you wonder where I've been. You went to for right? Yeah. So he quit Live Jive, right? So uh, um, Live Jive called me and said, hey, man, can you come play with us? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. So I joined Live Jive, and I was, in, I was uh, off and on with Live Jive for, for a couple of years after that. It was a pretty good group. It was a pretty good group. They, they, it was one of those groups that they didn't know what they had when they had it. And so they never did anything, you know, they never tried to do anything collectively as a group. They were just happy playing bars, playing the, the Red Onion in Newport Beach and and uh, the White House and Seal Beach and uh, in Laguna Beach and, you know, yeah. just playing the local bars. But they never tried to do anything better. But it was a pretty good group. Modest aspirations. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Let's talk a little bit more about Rolls Royce. So they were uh, really Norman's marquee group at that for his yeah. label. I mean, they hit it so big with car wash right off the bat. And, um, you know, the thing about Rolls Royce is when they first came out with car wash, you know, I took him for like a novelty act, you know, between the song and being part of a movie and the whole thing. I didn't really take him that seriously. But then, you know, over time, hearing more of their, their tracks, and I think I saw them part of a funk fest at some point, um, they, were, they were for real. Um, and they had a lot of great tracks. Yes, they did. So, you know, they, of course, would go out on tour, but you would play on their, their studio records, but you never went out with them? I never, yeah, I have to explain this all the time to people <laughs> because my name is on three of their albums, right? with bass credits and also writing credit because I co-wrote their last hit song. Um, I was never in the group. They, they were signed. They were, they had already hit when I got there, when I signed in 77, they were recording their third album and their bass player, Duke, Duke Job was a great bass player. The only thing that I, I, he was a great bass player. I don't know why I got, uh, I don't know why I got uh, Norman's favor. The Duke could certainly play, but for some reason I got Norman's favor. And on the, uh, on the Strikes Again album, 
Norman had me play on a couple of songs on that album, and one of them was the single. But one of well, there was there was a couple of singles that came out. The first one was a "You Abandoned Me," "Love Don't Live Here Anymore." Yeah, right? that's the best known one. Yeah, that was number one. The second one was a "I'm in Love," Ooh, and I love the feeling. Hey, I'm in love. I'm in love. I'm... I I played on that song. That's one of the that's one of the two songs I played on that song. I was never in the group. <laughs> but whenever, whenever people introduce me, they say, Yeah, and he who played with Rolls Royce, who played on Rolls Royce, Car Wash, this is Mark Canoli. I didn't play on Car Wash. Well, no, I, I didn't say that. <laughs> I know you didn't. I know you didn't, but but this is my chance to explain it to the world. I know I didn't play on that album. I know I didn't play on Boy, I love you so. Never, ever, ever. I didn't or play on that. Or wishing on a star. Yeah. That was before I got to the label. I have to explain this to people everywhere I go. At my church, they introduced me like when, oh, yeah, this is Mark Canola. He used to play on Car Wash. I'm like, oh, man, not again. Well, you have to be a real fan of R&B and funk to know further into their catalog what came yeah. later, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, I know, I mean, I was curious, you know, Duke had some, you know, pretty well-known substance issues. So I don't know if that played into, you know, making an opportunity for you to slip in and do some of those when maybe he wasn't available. Um, maybe that influenced Norman a little bit. That, the part, that's probably part of it because Rose Royce was really big, those first three albums. Those first, yeah, those first, those first three albums, they were really big and they were touring. They went out touring, you know, and then at one point, probably like 78, 79, they were one of the top two or three R&B acts in the United States. You know, at, at one time, there wasn't hardly anybody bigger there. I remember the first time I went to see them live. It's like I spent years hanging out with them at the studio. And then finally, I went to go see them live, like in maybe 79 or 80. And they played like nine straight gold or platinum singles in their show. I was like, every one of these songs is a big hit, you know. So, uh, yeah. and I remember them. They, I saw them. I saw them at the Inglewood Forum. You know, it was it was a good show. I was really, I was I was proud to know them. I was proud of them because I by that time I had become friends with them, you know, and. Um, and I, I was I was proud for them. They were they were good musicians. Say who they were before they hit it big. They were um, the backup group for Edwin Starr. Remember Edwin Starr? Oh yeah. Who did Twenty Five Miles War? Yeah. 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 They were his backup band uh, when he went out to tour. So back to uh, Whitfield's Motown days. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, okay, you weren't a member, but you did play on three or four of their albums. Say that again? I said, okay, I said you weren't an official member, but you played on three or four Rolls Royce yeah. albums. That's correct. Yeah. I, play, I played on uh, Rolls Royce Strikes Again. I played on uh, Rolls Royce Jump Street. And I played on... Uh, um was, was golden touch and golden touch was the one that i co-wrote this this single 
with uh, with Norman and Walter Downing. Yeah, I have a track list here. Yeah, title track. Yep. Number four in the running order. Okay. Yeah. Um, so on the subsequent albums, you said you played on two tracks on that first one that you were with them. How, roughly, how much did you play on the other records? On uh, Rolls Royce. Let's see. On on Jump Street. I don't know. Maybe three songs. And then on Golden Touch, again, maybe maybe two. I can't remember. It's been so long since I've heard those. I can't remember everything that's on them. But yeah, at that time I was I was playing so many Whitfield sessions. I was just like swamped. Did you happen to play in Funkin' Around? That sounds like something I would have played on. <laughs> I can't. I can't remember what it sounds like. Um, well, I also show that um, Rainbow Connection. Were you on that one? That album? Yeah. You know what? I forgot about that one. I think I did play on that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you play I, on them? They actually cut covered what you waiting for on that one and bad mother funker that's a good bad mother funker i think that's duke on that one and then they had a cold funky instrumental called pizzazz I, I, it's i'm sorry it's so it's been so long i can't remember your your image is starting to get uh, a little weird here is that um um, looks fine to me. Looks fine to you, okay. Yeah, yeah. Just you. Not you on my end, then. It's just you. You got to stop drinking when we do these. <laughs> um, there. So, Undisputed Truth, you know, I had Joe on the show. Oh, you had Joe Pep Harris? Yeah, yeah. He's had an amazing, amazing career. Yeah, he has. And um, that particular record you played on, were you on, on that whole record with them, uh, Smoking? Which one? Smoking, Undisputed Truth. That That's me on Smoking. Yeah. Because it's showtime. You're on Showtime? Everybody get ready to get down. Yeah, that's me. That's a killer track. That's me. I had, I had brought in some effects on the bass that Norman had not heard before. And uh, he loved the sound that I had on. I had a, um, I had a little, uh, a little box called a funk machine. And it was, uh, it was basically an envelope follower type sound. And I put a, and I also had an octave divider, which wherever I played the bass, it put a note of octave below it. So it's got that real heavy bottom on it. Gonk, donk, 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 you know, so that was that was me. He loved that sound. Yeah. 
Uh, one, one thing I appreciated about Norman as a producer, one thing I learned from him, that in production, you have to be courageous. You have to be courageous to, uh, to variate from a sound that's been around for a long time and try new things, you know. Now, it might have been to his advantage that he was already a legend at that time. By the time I got when he was a legend, and he could do whatever he wanted and people still like it but but he was he was not afraid to try the the newest effects pedals or the newest synths or anything like that and to find parts on his songs like that and i, I learned that, that 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 that's important that it, it takes courage to you know to vary away from what's worked for so long and try to do something different and um, that that was uh, that was pretty special that was pretty special well, that I mean, he showed that at, at Motown. He definitely tried new things there, and the way he brought the funk to Motown through the Temptations mm -hmm. was, you know, way funkier than than the other stuff on Motown for the most part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what was he like in terms of temperament? You know, was he uh, jovial? Was he intense? You know. <laughs> um. Yeah, he he was both. He was when we were working, he was intense. He was focused. Um, I mean, I we we would come in. We we'd do sessions like this. He he'd book a session for Monday afternoon at two o'clock, right? Two o'clock in the afternoon. And everybody had to be there. Everybody in the rhythm section would have to be there. And we'd be there and we'd start recording, you know, after we got plugged in, you know, dialed in on the studio, tuned up, all of that, and we started working on a song. And we would work straight from Monday afternoon till maybe Friday night at 3 a.m. in the morning. Nobody would leave. Nobody would leave. We'd literally be in the studio. We'd, we'd lay a basic track, and then everybody would come in and clean up and overdub, just straight for for days at a time. But literally days at a time, three four days at a time. He'd send somebody out for like two hundred dollars worth of fat burgers or down to Pink's hot dogs. Nobody would leave, right? Somebody go out, come back with food. Everybody would eat. And we'd start on another song and we would just work through the night nonstop. And he would be there the whole time. He would be there the whole time. Having he'd lay his head over on the on the console while the playback was going on, right? This is like, you know, two days later, right? Everybody else would get a chance to sleep while everybody while somebody was overdubbing. Somebody would go in and overdub guitar parts or overdub keyboard parts or whatever. You know, over the, the bass parts or overdub drums or percussion or whatever. And everybody else would go out in the lobby, lay on the couch, lay on the floor, whatever, sleep for a couple of hours until we all had to come back in and do it again. And so that that was pretty tense. I, I didn't know sessions went like that in those days. And it was it was uh, it was a lot of fun. We was all young. You know, we, we were all young. So it was all cool. But we go nonstop and then, you know, in a week, week and a half, 
we would have like, you know, we'd have maybe six, five or six songs of an album where the rhythm tracks would basically be done. And then after that, it was just bring the singers in and working hard. The singers, the, the, what I remember, he had three engineers that worked eight hour shifts each. It was Leonard Jackson, Steve Smith, and uh, Bill Ravencraft. And they would, they would work eight hour shifts on the board, whatever Norman wanted. Norman stayed there the whole time. Those guys would come in and do their shift and leave. The musicians would come in. We'd stay there with Norman. Man, I need you to come fix up this spot on the bass. Oh, okay. And I'd get up, go in there, grab my bass, tune up, hear what I needed to fix. Okay, I can fix that. Fix that part. Go back out there and go back to sleep until all the stuff he wanted to get done, like he, it, it was, it was, there were always overdubs. We, we always laid a basic track and then we'd, we'd lay, we'd come back and lay some kind of overdubs, right? Um, that would go on all the time. Uh, and Norman was, Norman was a lot of fun. He was a lot of fun. He, he, he was kind of sarcastic. He had kind of a sarcastic sense of humor, was always saying smart aleck stuff. And it, it was always fun. It was always funny. But then there would be times when he would like, when he gets fatigued, he would get on edge. You know, he'd get on edge and, and everybody would know it and everybody would just kind of calm down and, and be cool. Uh, he didn't allow, so so I, I, I was never really into drugs or anything like that. And I think that's another thing he liked about me that I wasn't a druggie. Because we had guys who were really into, really into drugs, and Norman didn't allow drugs in the studio at all, so that was kind of a, uh, that was kind of a thing for him, and uh, and and his, his standard for production was very high, it was really kind of high, and and what I what I appreciated what 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 happened to me, as a young man coming into that environment, being a self-taught guy. My standard went from like, okay, to like, I'm playing on gold records. I gotta be up here, you know? After my, after I played on my uh, fourth gold record, he gave me as a gift, right? Just out of the blue, he went out and bought me an Olympic bass, right? In 1978, I had never seen a bass so fine. It was a $3,000 bass guitar back in 1978. Now, now that same bass guitar is worth like $10,000. But uh, he gave that to me. He just, he just gave it to me as a gift. He says, man, this is for all your hard work. And as soon as I saw the case, I knew exactly what it was. Case is huge, right? I knew exactly what it was. And the, I think the first session I did on that bass was, was Showtime. You know, I think Showtime. Yeah, I think Showtime was the very first first session I did on that bass because I remember. That's a nice upgrade from the Funk Masters. Say that again. That's a nice upgrade from the Funk Masters. Oh yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
it was a good time, man. He has he has a ton of writing credit. So, but did he actually play any instruments? He he couldn't sing, right? So, how did he sort of did he uh, work sort of like a James Brown and George Clinton, where he would convey all these ideas to musicians and and do it that way? Basically, that's how he did it. Sometimes he would come in and he'd bang a pattern because he was very pattern orientated, right? He would bang a pattern out on a piano, just and then we would have to come in and fill it in with, you know, with our own little flavor. So, uh, so he, he, he really liked working with me and Walter and Izzy because we have really, all three of us have really good ears. You know, we, we were, like I said, when we came off the road, we were chop heavy. You know, we, we came off of, of, of years of, of just touring and playing and doing five hour night gigs and rehearsing in the daytime. And we were just, we just chop heavy. You know, we, just, we knew how to play. We knew how to make it feel good. So he really liked working with us because we had good ears. We listened well to what he had. And so the three of us got a lot of sessions on the uh, on, on, on Norma's studio. It was great. It's, Did you feel like he paid a lot of attention to what was going on in music in general then and was, you know, wanting to, you know, keep up with or keep ahead of trends and that kind of thing? He did. He did. That's the other thing that he. That's the other thing that he taught me. Um, one thing I, I appreciate that. We always monitored the charts. We always monitored the charts. Bum um, City considered ourselves, or Mamatapi considered ourselves a funk band. So, uh, so we were. We were watching what was happening with, uh, at the time, you know, it was the Commodores, it was Earth, Wind & Fire, and then Cameo came out. And Cameo, when Cameo came out with, I just want to be what you want me to be, right? And there were just elements of grooves like that that we started to, like, incorporate and put our own little uh, spin on it, you know, uh, uh, group, you know, uh, cameo and and slave and those kind of groups. But then at the same time, Norman was watching pop stuff, stuff like what um, um, Dick Griffey's groups, uh, Shalimar uh, and Leon Silvers was doing. In fact, Leon hung out over at at uh, at um, Fort Knox. But oh, I didn't tell you to start. Tell you the story of Fort Knox. Fort Knox was. Norman's studio that he bought specifically to be Whitfield Records studio. But but uh, Leon Silvers used to hang out over there with us uh, when we would be tracking or just just be around there where all of this was going on. And then we he'd go back and he'd be doing like the Whispers or Shalimar or 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 even his group, the, the Silvers. And we and you know we'd be watching each other's stuff. Uh, who else was part of that mix was, uh, um, you know, Edwin Starr produced Carl, Carl Carlton with a she's a bad Yeah, he, he cut that track right there in Fort Knox. 
right? Right there in Norman's studio. He, that's where we, we recorded that, or the, he recorded that track. I didn't play on it. I was there because I was hanging out, but um, but I didn't play on that. But uh, but he cut that track there. I think I think Michael Nash played keyboards on that. Played the uh, the uh, the synth bass. Why you do do that? Let it go, 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 go. It was a funky groove though. But, Michael but, Nash of Rose Royce for viewers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael was a great keyboard player too. He was a great keyboard player. And and the thing about Michael, it was it was almost like Michael knew Norman liked to try new stuff. So as soon as a new Oberheim came out, Michael went and bought it, brought it in. Hey, Norman, take a listen to this. And you know, Michael seemed to be the first one in the company that always had the newest gear that was coming out. It was it was very cool. And we'd all be sitting around listening, like, wow, man, how many voices? Eight voices. Oh, that's great, man. The eight voice synthesizer. Now synthesizers have a 64 voice polyphonic now, but in those days that was pretty exciting, you know. Yeah. And the, and the arps and all of that. Michael always seemed to have the new stuff. And he and and um he knew how to use it. That's that's one of the things that another thing that I had to learn. Um I noticed that a lot of, of keyboards would buy a new synth and they would play it like a piano, but really with an understanding, and Norman, Norman understood that, the synth is a whole new instrument. It might have keys on it, but you don't play it like a piano. You have to figure out how to apply these unique sounds and unique patches to your music and you can't play it like you play a piano. You have to come up with a, a different approach. And I learned so much from Norman in sitting around with him and the keyboard player, um, with him and the keyboard player um, experimenting, figuring out how to turn the dials and, and you know use the filters and the oscillators to, to create this sound that you know hadn't been used before on the record on any records and it was pretty exciting you know it's pretty exciting you'd hear something say okay yeah that's it i don't know no, this doesn't work let's try this thing. and we'd sit around for hours you know and I, i'm sitting around listening to these guys do this and and he had he had two keyboard players who really really understood that both of them were rose royce guys victor nix victor nix was a really just an amazing uh keyboard player who understood Synths and 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 um, uh, Victor was really good at at understanding how to apply the presets. All all synths had presets, right? Stuff that they suggest you try this. Victor would try it and say, "Oh yeah, I can use this to do this." And Michael Nash was real good at filters and oscillators and turning the dials and taking a basic sound and changing it. And, and and Norman was real patient with these guys to allow them to create like that to the come laboratory. out. With, yeah, it really was. It was a laboratory for all of us. And, and I'm sitting around listening to this learning because, you know, I when I first I, I, I when I first saw Sense, I was still like, you know, Fender Rhodes kind of a sound or or. Uh, you know, just a clav kind of a sound or organ. Those are classic instruments. 
right? But synths came in with a whole different texture. And like, like that, like that opening line on Love Don't Live Here Anymore, that opening synth line. It's like a creamy, a real creamy lead line. And Norman understood how that would just kick this song off, you know, with that new, that rich sound that's so different and mysterious sounding. And then that line comes in and that girl uh, and, and Gwen come in with, you are bad than me, love don't love here anymore. You know, she was, she, uh, she was really good too. It was, it, it, I mean, just the, the, the texture, a song like that and the way he used textures was re were really, really exciting, really good. What was uh, uh, Wawa Watson like? I mean, he unfortunately left us uh, not too long ago and such a legendary player. And I just was always a big fan from, you know, the stuff he did with Herbie Hancock to, you know, the Whitfield stuff. And what was he like? You know what I mean? I love the dude. He was a bit of a smart ass, right? <laughs> he was a bit of a, he, he was a, he was another one who was kind of sarcastic, but boy, he could play. He was he could play. He was he was great. He was he was funny too. You know, he was funny too. Him him and Norma would would kick it off. Uh, you know, just talking junk, just talking East Coast junk. And 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 uh, I re I remember sitting in the studio laughing between the two of them. That but but. Um, but he's another one, I, I, and and I think I think one of the things. So see, he called me for a couple of sessions outside of Whitfield Records, and I think he called me because in in the heart that we have was making the music feel good. That that was my thing. My thing was if it doesn't feel good, it ain't good. So I always played what felt good, and I think he picked that up from me. And we actually wrote a couple of songs together, uh, but he picked that up for me that he liked me on bass because I could make the music feel good. And so we did a lot of sessions together. We did we did a, a whole lot of stuff. And then then I brought him in, like when Norman set me, at, at one point, Norman put me in charge of, of finishing or of, of producing the Mamatabi albums, right? And, uh, and I brought Watson in on, Oh man, I brought I brought Watson in on, on several of the things that I did. I did a um uh first of all on, on um the Junior Walker album. I, I produced half of Junior Walker's first album with on the Whitfield label, the one that got nominated for Grammy. And uh um I brought Watson in on that. I brought Watson in on on our first or Mamatati's first single uh was a song called um Long Distance Love. And uh, I wasn't sure what to have Watson play. I just said, dude, just do what you do. Make it make it sound good. And he put that lick on and he had that little he had that little guitar bullet thing right? Which was so cool. I mean it was just funky and he knew exactly how to place it, where to place it to make it just just kick you. You know what I mean? He knew exactly how to do it. So he, right? It was so cool. And um, I, I brought Watson in on on, uh, 
Oh man, what else did I do? Se several things that I that I did that I wrote and and produced that I brought Watson in, and and a couple of things he did, he did the same thing. He brought me in because he knew I could make the bass feel good. At least I, that's what I thought. I thought he, we we had the same kind of heart, you know, when we would be recruit, when we would be creating with Norman. You know, there was a couple of sessions where it was just, it was be. Norman would bring in a, a like a little drum machine, one of those little uh, funk boxes. The, the original drum machines they call them funk boxes, right? Yeah, from Grand Central Station is where I first heard that. But okay, yeah, chocolate, yeah. Norman brought one in, and he just like Norman banging on the piano, Watson playing guitar, and me playing bass to a funk box. And then he'd bring in other musicians, like he'd bring in James Gadson, put play real drums on the funk box, but it would still be in the background. And uh, and and we because we knew how to make it feel good, you know, we just knew how to make it feel good. So, and I, I loved Watson. I, I love Watson. He was he was a little he was a little smart ass, but he was he was a great player and he was a lot of fun. It's funny when you say that, the personality wise. I keep thinking of his cover of his only solo record with the mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes motif. I don't know if you yeah. remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Junior uh, Walker record was uh, Backstreet Boogie. That's what you're talking about, right? Yes, that's the one. Yeah. I was so excited about that because that was the first time in my life that somebody had gave me authority to produce a major act on what to me was a major label. This was a major label to me because we had so, the label had so many hits during that period. This was a major label. And I, I was 22 years old and Norma says, I want you to help me produce this Junior Walker album. And I'm like, what, <laughs> what? I'm 22 years old, right? So um, I wrote uh, I wrote exactly half the album. I think I think it's well not exactly half. I think it's seven songs on the album, and I I wrote and produced three or four of them, something like that. And uh, uh, and in the norm, and then the the album got released, and it got nominated for a Grammy. My first time out, you know, my first production out got nominated for a Grammy, and it. And it it helped cement my status in Whitfield Records, you know, as a label. I didn't even know I got nominated. I came in from a, I came in just on my regular coming in to hang out, and somebody and Norman said, "Hey, you are you proud?" I said, "I'm proud about what?" He says, "You got nominated for a Grammy." I went, "What?" He said, "Yeah, our Norman album, uh, our our." Uh, a Junior Walker album got nominated for a Grammy. I said, "You're kidding!" He wasn't kidding, you know. So I was, I was pretty proud of that. We didn't win, you know, but I, I thought for 22 years old, that was pretty special for a kid who, who a self-taught kid who learned how to produce sitting around with this legend, you know. I mean, who learned how to. Uh, to, to do this just by, you know, th there's some things that you have to, there's some things you have to, to study, to learn. 
And there's some things that you learn from osmosis. You just learn from being in that. You be in the company of greatness and some of that greatness rubs off on you and you just kind of you work with it. You know, you run with it. you take what you learn and you run with it. And that's that's what it was like for, with Norman. You know, his so much. He he exuded so much creativity and so much greatness and understanding about what works that, you know, it, it, at this time he'd be saying stuff. He I don't even know if he knew what he was saying was was, you know, was just like he was teaching so many people. There were so many, so many people, people that he was teaching there. I mean, it was a, a lot of us were just like, you know, was just gleaning from the things he would do and the things he was would, would say. Did, did he ever uh, get nostalgic or, or share stories from Motown? Yeah. Oh, yeah, he did that all the time. He did what did that you say about Barry Gordy? <laughs> good stuff? Um, both. He said good stuff and bad stuff about Gordy and Barry. <laughs> good stuff and bad stuff. I, I probably probably be better for me not to say the stuff I remember. You know, so I'm, I'm going to avoid that question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he had some amazing stories. Yeah. Um, you know, and when you were talking, Mark, about um, that period and, you know, experimenting with sounds and, you know, those other groups like Cameo and Slave and all them, people that didn't live through that era of music and maybe go back now and hear some of the songs in isolation or go back and listen to them, they missed the experience of the sort of chronological development of it all, you know, and yeah. back then it was amazing because it was developing so fast. The technology of the instruments was changing. The musical innovation was changing and it was so competitive and such a golden era of funk and, and funk jazz. And um, it pushed it, that competitiveness and the tools, and the the whole vibe it just pushed it to such heights you know i just yes that and i and i don't know that not uh you know having that lift through it you may not be able to fully grasp that but you know it it, it was just an amazing time it really was it was very special this best I'm, I'm i mean i i i realized that god had blessed me to be in that position at that time with those people. And and Whitfield had a, a Norman had a, a great little family of artists and writers. I mean, people, all of them left uh, just the camaraderie and the fellowship of this these creative minds left, left really, really uh, impression on me that I'm so grateful that, you know, I was able to be a part of that as a young man, you know, from pretty much from 22 years old to 27 years old, I was uh, just locked into that whole thing with, you know, when I think of some of the people that I, that I, I worked with some of the, um, the artists and the writers. I worked with Miles Gregory, who who wrote "Love Don't Live Here Anymore." I wrote with Robert Daniels. Uh, I worked with Willie Hutch. You know, I worked with uh, 
several players. Uh, there was a group called Nitro who had just amazing, amazing musicians, right? Led by a young man named Pepper Reed. Pepper was a monster guitar player, just a monster guitar player. And Kenny Scott, who later left, uh, he, he later ended up playing in uh, with Rick James and the Punk Funk Horns. Kenny Scott, Lamorse, Payne, and Chris Powell, um, who were part of Nitro, uh, and they, they had a really good bass player. Ted Ted Willingham was a, just a great bass player. And I just think about uh, those guys, the guys in Masterpiece, you know, Robert Daniels, Spider Turner. Spider Turner was a character, man. He was and a, and a great songwriter, you know, just the, the whole family that he had assembled there. Uh, we, we, it was just it was just really a great less time and I and and I consider it you know I, I dropped out of college to get into the music industry and within within uh, three years from the time I dropped out of college I ended up in you know in the studio with Norman Whitfield and the next five years were a massive that that was my college education it was a massive education in the music industry and in production. I learned so much in those five years of just of doing it, being part of it, playing on all those records, singing on all those background sessions, uh, you know, working with all these artists, writing all these songs, and the the competition. Norman Norman recognized that competition between his writers between the designated writers elevated the uh, elevated the product. So he kept all of us competing. I mean, we were all compete. Everybody was competing to get a song on the Rose Royce album, right? Miles Gregory was the first one to get a, um, to get a, um, a song on the Rose Royce album. And he was, Miles was a great, was a, a great writer. And then everybody was just, just trying to like, okay, write something that Norman's gonna like that's gonna to, to get on the album. So I was I was really honored that I got to do the title track for um um for Golden Touch. And it was a but 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 it it's 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 what it was the drive of that uh of that competition. And it, and it was a friendly competition. We we all honored each other. We all, you know, we somebody would write a song and everybody else would love it, even if it meant that they didn't get a, a shot on you know one of the major acts. The only one that changed that around was when Willie Hutch came in. You know, Willie was the guy who wrote "You and I Must Make a Pact." You know, really, Willie Willie came in. Really didn't like let anybody else write on any of his song on any of his his product, you know. He was old school at that point. He was old school, yeah. He was old school. He was his own, he was a legend in his own, in his own right at that point. So, but it was just, um, it, it was it was really fun, you know. Uh, I ended up doing a couple of junior albums and, um, you know, my, my first production nominated for a Grammy and then, then my group Mamatap, we finally had a hit song. It was only regional. It only hit in certain areas. It never took off, but but it 
it it it was it was huge in the southeast. It got it got to be pretty big in the southeast. What was that track called? It was called Monster Fun. Monster Fun, and it was a. Uh, it didn't it didn't go gold or anything, but it was it was it was huge back in the F F U N or F U N K. Fun F U N. Okay. Yeah. 